if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation chapter 2. We are continuing this super long series. By the way, we're going through the entire book of Revelation. We're five weeks in. We're still in chapter two. So sorry about like the, like the snail's pace that we seem to be traveling at. Um, th- things will pick up after we get through chapter three in, in a few weeks. Because what's going on, and I've, I've talked about this already a little bit. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation really kind of set up what the whole thing is. So it's, in my opinion... The, the best way to understand Revelation is really to understand what's going on in the first three chapters, which is to say, like, you have the introductory chapter, and then chapters two and three are these, like, little miniature letters to, like, these seven different churches in these seven different cities, and it kind of explores, really, what's going on in all these different cities that would necessitate this whole letter to begin with. And so, the first question we have to ask is, like, who's getting this mail? Like, who is this for? And so what we're, we're looking at each of these like seven cities and asking like, okay, what is John trying to say, the writer of this letter, what's he trying to say to this group of people and why did, how exactly does that inform the rest of the letter? And so um, before we get to that, I, I was thinking this week about a couple of weeks ago, I, uh, my, <laughs> I was sitting at the table with my, my daughter, the kitchen table, and we were having uh, what we often refer to as a green bean standoff. And um, my, my daughter is three, and if you if you have kids, you totally understand. Like there is this there's this thing that happens when they don't want to eat food, and you have this thing like it's a principled stance of like there's two more green beans and you will eat those green beans, and they're under the opinion uh, that no they will not, and uh, and so it really becomes it becomes a test of the wills, and um, my daughter and if you if you've worked in our kids ministry if you spent any time around my daughter you know that she has. She has like this un- this remarkable skill of like diffusing any sort of tense situation. I don't know how she does it. She'd be a great like hostage negotiator um, someday, maybe not today. But um, but so we were sitting at the table, and I'm I'm sort of I'm engaged in this face off, and I'm pretty stubborn, and so I'm I'm trying really hard to be like firm and like no, we're we're gonna we're gonna finish the green beans, and so she's like goofing around, and she keeps like getting out of her chair, and she keeps, and eventually I try really hard to be like you know like stern dad, which is not. It's not like my, my my most natural like best posture, and so I I, I basically I say, hey, s- sit down and finish your food, and like so she looks at me for a second, and I think like oh no I I was too harsh, and so but then she like turns and she looks down at her food and she goes, well that scared me to death, <laughs> so I have no power is essentially what's going on here. You know what I mean? Like this is, and and so you have these moments as a parent where you have to, you you feel like this ridiculous amount of frustration, but you also are pretty amused by what your kid can do. And so you have in this one moment, you have utter frustration and then like this weird like sense of respect and love for them for what they're able to accomplish in like in these moments. And so you can in one sitting, in like one like simple like present moment, you can have Lots of love and lots of frustration for this one human being, right? Like, every parent understands what this feels like. Now, and the reason I bring this up is because we're looking at a letter that's written to a group of people in a city called Thyatira. And this letter, probably, I would argue, more than any other letter in this little collection of miniature letters, feels like that. It feels like it's almost like he's writing to two different people in two different places because there's so much, like, there's a lot of love and grace in this letter, but there's also a lot of, like, anger and frustration, and it's all just, like, right there on the page together. And if if you read this at face value, you're like, who is he writing this to? Because it feels, it feels like, like, whiplash almost, like he's all over the map, almost like, I, I really almost felt like I'm going to have to re- preach like two different sermons on this one letter because it's so tonally different in one place than in another. And then this realization of like, oh, no, no, as a parent, I do this every day because you have this thing of 
yeah, there's a lot of love and grace and compassion, but there's also like an unbelievable amount of frustration and it's all just kind of right there in the same place. And so we're going to look at this letter and it, again, it's going to feel like why, why is the tonal shift so dramatic? And again, remember that, that emotion of, yeah, we, we do this all the time. And so what we're going to do, it's almost going to feel like two sermons because what we're going to do is we're going to try, first of all, we're going to look at where is the frustration coming from? And then we're going to look at, okay, where is the compassion and the grace coming from? And where do those two things sort of intersect? So, um, so let's just get started. In verse 18, it says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira. And remember, every time it says the word angel, this is the word messenger. So he's, he's writing, he's saying, to, to the person whose responsibility is to communicate to the people. To the angel in the church of Thyatira. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Which is a really nice thing to say, right? Like, I know you're working really hard and actually things are getting better in lots of ways. So it feels very like encouraging and compassionate. And it's almost like he's not about to say the next thing that he's about to say, because in verse 20, it's like, he takes this weird left. Have you ever had somebody compliment you? And then they say the word, but, and it's like everything they said before in the compliment, it's like, Oh, that didn't matter at all. Because like everything that came after that, like, that's what you really think. This almost feels like that because he says this really encouraging thing. And then in verse 20, he totally changes his tone entirely. And then in verse 20, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By, teach, by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. And it, like, he continues to like, ratchet it up and up and up. And then in verse 22, he says, So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Which, okay, all the nice things, but like, where did the nice thing before, where did that go? Like, all of a sudden, we're talking about striking children dead. Like, this is... It got really dark really fast. And so th- this, which raised, again, raises a lot of questions and we'll get back to sort of the content of the letter in a minute. But at this point, we really need to be asking, okay, who exactly is this for? And why is he using like, why is this like the super disjointed tonal sort of language? So the first thing every single week we've had to do this, but the first thing we have to ask is what's going on in Thyatira? What, like, what is life like here? And who is this person he's referring to? Because he said, so, he, he he gets all cranked up because he says, this woman Jezebel. And so who is he talking about and what's going on in the city? So let's start with the city. Now, Thyatira, I almost started writing too early. The city of Thyatira is, it's a little bit different than the cities we've looked at before. Now, it's, it's kind of a smaller town, first of all, and it is completely run by trade guilds. In terms of like business practices, this is a very active community. And so what you have is you have lots of different people who own their own businesses, who work in family businesses, and they're all part of what was known as a trade guild. And so you would have different people who do lots of different professions, and each of those professions, so like if you were a tailor or a like a dealer in cloth, or if you are a um, if you're a farmer or any sort of thing that you do, there's, there's like lots and lots of different professions and every single profession has, is part of what was known as a trade guild, which is basically an early form of like a union. And so if you are doing business in this town, you have to have a good relationship with other business people in your town. Otherwise no one's going to do business with you because it's all a series of networks. And so, um, In fact, in the book of Acts, there's this story about um, this woman named Lydia. And 
some of the only things we know about Lydia, one, is that she was one of the early church leaders in Thyatira, in the city, and that she was a dealer in purple cloth. So Lydia, one of the early church leaders, was a business leader in Thyatira, which had to mean that she was already a member of one of these trade guilds. So you have someone who's a big deal in the early church, who's also probably a big deal in her respective trade guild. And so the trade guilds do lots of different things. And the, like um, among other things, they will supply like legal support in case like you are having trouble. If your business needs some sort of like con- contractual stuff going on, or if they if they have other sorts of needs that require assistance, the trade guild will provide you with legal help. They'll provide you with like financial aid if your business comes under under fire. They will help you meet other people who will help you do business. So it's a I mean it's not just a good thing to be a part of a trade guild. It's a necessary thing. So if you have a job. If you participate in any way in the economy of Thyatira, you need to be a part of a trade guild. This is a major part of this world. Now, here's where it gets complicated. And this won't surprise you because this has sort of come up in every, um, basically every time we talk about any of these cities. The thing about the trade guilds is that they were not just economic groups. They were religious groups. And so um, unlike Pergamum, which we talked about last week, where there were all, there's all sorts of influence from like these Greek and Roman gods, Thyatira is actually influenced by different, a different set of gods, gods uh, that were often that we would refer to as like Asiatic gods or gods that originated from the continent of Asia. And so this is a little farther east than a lot of these other towns. And so, unlike Pergamum, which had all sorts of other Greek influences, the city of per- or I'm sorry, the th- city of Thyatira, the trade guilds were mostly uh, oriented toward the service of a god named um, Tyrimnos, which is a which is an eastern god. And in fact, if you were to Google, if you were to Google like ancient Thyatira, Tyrant coins, which why wouldn't you? Um, what, what else is more? Like, what else do you have to do on the internet other than Google ancient Thyatiran coins? You would find not only would you find coins that are dedicated to Caesar because this is part of the Roman Empire, so that's part of the currency. But a lot of the coins at this time have image, images of this god Tyrimnos. And there was actually another god who was directly connected to Tyrimnos in the mythology, and her name was Sambithi. And so you would have these two gods, the worship of these two gods, Tyrimnos and Sambithi, who were kind of, the worship of these gods was sort of like the engine that kind of ran the trade guilds. And so in order to participate in the trade guilds, it wasn't just like you had to come to the union meetings. You also had to participate in festivals and feasts and like other sorts of like gatherings that maybe you don't want your kids to hear about. And... You would have to go to all of these things because if you don't go to those things, then all of a sudden you're not making the connections you need to make and you are not active in the guild in the way that you need to in order to do business in the way that people are trying to do business. And so all of a sudden – and so every time you would get together, there would be like the business element, like who needs what, but there would also be the religious element in which you do these practices in worship to these other gods, Tyrimnus and Sambithi. And so you have an economic structure – that also has a very deep religious component to it. So your economics and your religion are connected. And so the guilds run on this financial, like the whole financial engine of this of the city is run by the guilds, and the guilds are run by a religious ideology. And so that's that's the system. So John writes to this group of people, and he says, now some of you, everything is going re- well, and you're like things are actually getting better. But then he, he shifts his tone, and he says, but some of you tolerate, and he says that woman Jezebel. Now. One of the things we have to remember, this is huge, you always have to remember this when you're looking at the book of Revelation, is that everybody who's, who's reading this letter has a very deep sense of Jewish consciousness. So everything that gets said, it's not just being said about what's happening here. A lot of times there will be references to older stories 
that actually inform what we're talking about now. So if you are talking to a Jewish conscious audience and you use the name Jezebel, what exactly are you thinking? Now, actually, and so what we find is that John's actually not referring at all to someone who lived in Thyatira. He's actually speaking in code. And so to a Jewish, uh, to a Jewish conscious audience, this like instantly would have clicked in. So turn, if you have a Bible or if you have one of our bulletins, it's on the back, to uh, the book of 1 Kings chapter 16. Now, hundreds of years before the book of Revelation shows up, the, the people of Israel had a king named Ahab. And Ahab... Um, is not like remembered as like the best king ever. In fact, he's kind of remembered as sort of a, a weasel, and uh, that's the original Hebrew. He was a weasel, and so, uh, and so in in First Kings, what we find is we find all sorts of description of what's going on with this guy, and a lot of it has to do with his wife, whose name was Jezebel. And so in First uh, Kings sixteen, beginning of verse thirty, it says. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit sins of of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, the son of Ethbaal of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal. Or if you grew up where I grew up, it's the word Baal. Um, If you, by the way, if you Google, again, I'm just giving you Google tips today, but if you Google like B-A-A-L pronunciation, this is, um, if you're not looking at it, this is what it looks like. Um, B-A-L-L pronunciation, you will find people like fighting to the death over like how to pronounce this word. So the more Hebraic way to pronounce it is Baal. The way I was raised to, to pronounce it is Baal. And so I'm trying to be as historically accurate as I possibly can. So I'm going to go against my instincts and I'm just going to say Baal. Does that sound all right? Everybody okay with that? Thank you. So, so, that's, um, so we find Ahab, this king, marries this woman, and the thing that she brings into the ecosystem of this people is the worship of this god. And this is not, and by the way, there's a, there's a, actually, let's look at the, the next verse. It says, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that, that he built in Samaria. So they move into, so he marries Jezebel and Jezebel brings with her all of her people's religious customs, including like all, all sorts of things that go into the worship of this new God who actually isn't a new God. It's a very, very old God. And so they build a temple. They, they start performing lots of rituals. Here's the thing about this God. There are lots of um, there's lots of baggage in the history of this group of people that actually dates way, way back before Jezebel ever showed up. So before this ever shows up in the book of Judges, you find that you have this group of people, the people of Israel, who have moved into the territory known as Canaan. And for like 40 plus years, or actually before 40 years ago, they were, they were released from slavery. So they were slaves. And then for 40 years, they were nomadic. And so you, if you have a group of people who have only ever been slaves and then like wandering nomads, hunter gatherers, and you move them into a new place, all of a sudden there's going to be new complications because they're not hunting and gathering anymore. They're trying to farm and they're trying to plant. So you have people who have had a major drastic lifestyle change and they've moved into this new territory. And the major God of this place that they moved into was Baal. And so you have this group of people and they're trying to farm and they're trying to plant. And all of a sudden they, they can't because they're not hunting and gathering. They're not doing anything they're familiar with. And the, the farming and the planting, it's not going the way they expected it to or the way they want it to. And so let's say they look across the way and they see all their neighbors who have lived there for generations and they're doing really, really well. They're really great at farming. And so they go to their neighbor as a person would do. And they say, Hey, we're having some trouble with our crops. What do you think we should do? 
Well, what, what would they say? They would not say, oh, yeah, actually, it's about, like, rotating your crops appropriately or making sure they're all spaced out. Or, like, this plant grows a lot better during this season or this plant grows better during this season or it's about, like, the soil type. They wouldn't say any of those things. What are they going to say? Because this is an ancient Near Eastern culture where everything comes from the gods. They're going to say, oh, all of our food comes from Baal. It's all a gift. And so what you have to do to make your plants grow is to please Baal. Because this god is the god of the soil. Or actually, more specifically, this is the god of fertility. So that includes both like procreation and agriculture. And so if you're having, a, if you're having trouble having children or if you're having trouble with your crops, then this is the god you want to consult. And so you have this group of people who are doing really, really well in the farming community and this new people who were like, how do we do this? And so you hear stories about like, well, the Israelites moved into this area and then they ran, they started serving this God. And as a kid in Sunday school, I was never given context for that. And I was like, well, that's dumb. Like why? Like, what do you do? Like trip over something? And all of a sudden you accidentally, like you're worshiping another religion, but no, it's, it actually, there was a pragmatic reason because they couldn't get the crops to grow. And so you can't get your crops to grow and you go to this God who, by the way, it was often referred to as the owner of the soil. And so if you believe that in order to make your crops grow, you need this God on your side, then what are you going to start doing? You're going to start worshiping this God in every way that you're supposed to. Now, which means all of a sudden you are participating in a system where your religion has an economic component to it. Does this sound familiar? So we're in a system now where our religion and our economics are are dance partners at this point. There is a spiritual dimension to our economic practices. So now some of the ways that you would worship Baal in in addition to participating in various like group activities that you wouldn't necessarily invite your children to, um, except they might. And um, in in addition to that, one of the ways if you if your crops don't grow, you you will begin to believe that Baal is angry with you. And the the thing you do when you believe that Baal is angry with you is that you begin to hurt your own physical body. And so there are lots of different stories and accounts of people either whipping themselves or like cutting themselves open or like mutilating their own body as a way of showing this God how sincere they were. In fact, there's a story where um, which uh, there's all kinds of different places we could go with this. I wish we had more time, but um, in in one one part of uh, the book of First Kings, there's a story about this one prophet who basically challenges the, this group of prophets from who, who all worship this god Baal. And basically, they they have a, a Near Eastern or ancient Near Eastern version of like a prophetic rap battle. And so, like they're trying to figure out like whose god is more powerful. And so, um, what ends up happening is Baal does not show up in the way that the prophets expected him to. And so, what do the, all, all of the prophets of Baal start doing? They all get out their swords and they all start cutting themselves. They're not just like being frustrated and like banging their head against the wall. They're doing the thing that they do every time they believe that their God is angry. And so this is, this is what it means to worship this God. And so if you want your crops to grow, you might be willing to do lots of very, very harmful, dark things in order to please this God. And so now go back to Jezebel. So Jezebel reintroduces Baal into the ecosystem. And then a few years later, there's a famine. So then look at, um, at 1 Kings chapter 18. In 1 Kings 18, it says, um, beginning at the end of verse 2, it says, Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. 
Ahab had, had said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we will not have to kill any of our animals. So things have gotten really dark and desperate and people are so hungry that we're talking about like, we need to do everything we can so we don't have to start killing off our own livestock just in order to survive. Meanwhile, we find out that the thing that Jezebel is doing is she's out there like committing like prophetic genocide against all this other group of people. Why in the midst of... Because here's the thing. A famine is an economic crisis. Why in the middle of an economic crisis would you have the queen killing prophets to another god? Because an economic crisis in her mind is a religious crisis. And so if, because it's Baal is her in her mind, Baal is angry because we've allowed these other prophets to exist. And so the only way to please our God is to murder everyone that this God doesn't like. And so what we have is we have this woman who begins to do lots of dark, violent things in the name of pleasing this God. In fact, there's, there, and she, she has a huge violent streak. There's a whole other story about how like, there's this guy who owns a vineyard and, um, and Ahab wants to buy the vineyard and the guy won't sell. And so uh, Jezebel starts like, spreading rumors about this guy and, uh, until the guy gets murdered, and then in, in, at which point the king inherits the guy's land. So this, this, uh, so this queen has lots of like, dark, evil stuff going on. So this is, this is what's going on with Baal. This is what's going on with Jezebel. And so when John writes to this group of people in Thyatira and he says, you tolerate that woman Jezebel, what's he saying? He's saying, you remember all those stories about how we had this once, we had this queen who was really, really evil. And all of that evil came from serving this God who was all about economic gain. What does it look like when we allow our need for economic gain to become like the thing that drives our religious practices. All of a sudden, we've gotten to some really, really dark places. And when he says, like, her, her children, when he starts talking about, like, I will strike her children dead, like, that's a very big, bold thing to say. But what's being, what's being said, it's not like actual literal children. Just, this is a figure in history. In fact, um, like, when, when it says her children, it's talking about, like, the people who follow her, the people who have subscribed to this way of living. And death and life in the Hebrew mind is not, like, I will kill this person. Like, all, everyone's going to have a heart attack at the same time or something like that. This is, death and life is about, like, are you or are you not becoming the people that God has called you and created you to be? Because death looks like becoming less and less human and less and less as we were, as we were meant to be. And life looks like becoming more and more who we were created to be. So... Um, and so when, when John brings out this name, Jezebel, he's actually bringing lots and lots of baggage along with it. And so it's like in, and this is a super easy um, example, but it's like in our world, if you ever want to talk about what it looks like when power intersects with evil, what do you do? You say, well, it's like Hitler, you know, because everybody gets that. It's like a one word shortcut to talk about like, okay, we're talking about evil and power. How do we, how do, how do we summarize that in one word? And we use we, 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 we invoke this name as a way of saying, like, I don't need to get into, I don't need to, like, describe to you what it looks like. All I need to do is say this name, and we all get it. So John is talking to this group of people who are very Jewish conscious, and he brings up this name Jezebel, which was a name that was synonymous with evil and power. This is what it looks like when evil and power mix together, and, and by the way, brings with it religion and economics, and so all, when all those things begin to mix together, lots of dark, evil sorts of things begin to happen. So when John is writing this letter and it gets really like frustrating and when, when he begins to get really angry and kind of drops the hammer a bit, what's he doing? He's saying, 
At what point did you think that participation in a system that was driven by economic gain wasn't going to affect you in a negative way? And so he begins to sort of, the whole thing is driven by what does it look like when you begin to go and participate with these guilds in ways that you may feel like don't matter that much, but it turns out they do. And he's invoking this name Jezebel as a way of saying like, don't you remember that there are stories in our own history that remind us like what it looks like when we begin to sell our soul for a dollar? And so all of a sudden, this is about what it looks like when, when spirituality and economics begin to conflict with one another. And when all of a sudden we don't remember that all of our choices, all of our economic choices are spiritual in nature. Every, every dollar you spend, has, there is a spiritual component to that. Every dollar you make, there is a spiritual component to that. So what John is doing here in this, in this passage to the people in Revelation, he's saying, like, don't you understand that everything, all of, of your, econ- the whole economic system that you are a part of, every time you interact with the market, you are, intera- you are doing something spiritual. Even though it doesn't feel like it, you are. And it changes you. It has to do with your soul. And there is something, we go down a dark, dark path when the need for more over, is overwhelmed by our need to become more of who we were created to be, our need to serve God. And so every dollar you spend has a spiritual dimension to it. Every dollar you make has a spiritual dimension to it. Is it possible we are participating in in the markets in all kinds of ways that we may not even be aware of, in ways that are actually very harmful and destructive? Is it possible that the work we do is actually bad for somebody? Is it possible that the money we spend actually hurts people? Like, for example, um, one of the things that we are, as a church, one of the things that we really always want to be very aware of is when you donate money, how do we take that money and how do we spend it in a way that is life-giving and honors the God that we serve? And, and so one of the things we do is the coffee that you're drinking, we always make sure and buy coffee that is we, – we buy from a, from a local roaster around here, and he, um, he buys all of his beans – directly from the farm. He participates in a system known as direct trade. And what that means is that he has an ongoing relationship with certain farmers throughout um, South America and, um, and Central America and, a little, and some in Africa even who all own their own farms. And part of being part of the direct trade system means that you have to pay all of your workers a fair and competitive wage. And if there are children or non-employees living on your property as part of their employment, you have to provide some sort of educational services. And so there's lots of stipulations that go along with and so we, at very early, like one of the earliest decisions we made is when we start serving coffee and we get to decide where the coffee comes from, we will always buy coffee that, um, that went towards something good or like that actually the money that we're spending is actually like providing some sort of life in the world. Because three of the most contested, like um, troubling like products in the, in the market right now are coffee, chocolate, and diamonds. In fact, if you've ever heard the term blood diamond, that's where, that's where that comes from. And so... A lot of times when you interact with one of those products, you're interacting with a product that has um, some pretty questionable origins. And so one of the things I think that this calls out is, are we, are we more interested in saving or making money, or are we more interested in providing life and security and hope for people who need it? And so part of that it begins with asking, like, where does our coffee come from? Or where do our clothes come from? Or where does our... Um, 
Where, where does our food come from? And so lots of times we have to learn to ask these questions. And we'll never get it right all the time. Like we live, we live in a world where it's very, very difficult to get this right every time. But we do have more information than we've ever had before. We were able, there are lots of websites that will tell you like, okay, here, here's where your clothes come from and here's where your food comes from. And, um, and so that's, you know, that's a useful thing to do. And so when we spend money, when we make money, there is a spiritual dynamic to that. Every dollar you have is a ballot. And every time you spend it, you are casting a ballot. You are voting for something with every dollar. And so when John is sending this, this letter, and he's kind of unloading all this frustration, he's unloading frustration about, like, this sort of, like, or, that finds its origins in, don't you understand that when you participate in the market and it's bad for people, it's bad for your soul. It actually creates lots of darkness in you when the thing that, that becomes most important is how much money I have versus is this or is this not providing any sort of life to the world around me? So, so that's the that's the frustrated element. Now, I'll, just really quickly, I want to look into. Okay, what about the, what about the other half? What about the part where he's like loving and compassionate? Because that's in there too. So go back to Revelation two, and look at verse twenty four. In verse twenty four, he writes, "Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, who uh, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so called dark, dark secrets." I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. And so he, he like unloads really hardcore on this one group of people who sort of sold out to the, to the market in order to make more money. And then he says, but some of you had not done that. And here's what I need the rest of you to do. You don't have to do anything. Just hold on. And so there's this really interesting sort of thing of like we all have, I would imagine, in our, in our minds more things that we could do. And more ways that we could participate in, like, making the world better. Or, like, more spiritual exercises that we could do that would make us more holy. And I'm sure the group of people receiving this are expecting some sort of, like, yeah, I haven't been participating in this kind of, like, dark practice. However, like, there's all kinds of things I can do. And to them, John is like, don't worry about it. <laughs> you, you, are, you, are facing const- you are constantly facing economic ruin. And for, for now, that's enough for you to handle. That's enough on your plate. In fact, look at what Jesus says um, in Matthew chapter 23. He's talking about the religious leaders. And he's kind of calling them out on some stuff. And in Matthew 23, it says, Then Jesus said to the crowd and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they have lots of religious power. So, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And so there is this sort of like constantly repeated sort of thing that we find throughout the scriptures of every once in a while, you'll have a group of religious people who are constantly telling everybody else all the ways that they're not getting it right. And all of the things that they need to do. And they keep piling more and more and more on top of this group of people. And Jesus says, that's no good if nobody's helping you. And he's saying, like, there's lots of religious leaders who are really, really quick to tell you what you need to do. But they're not going to lift a finger to help you. And here in Revelation, John is saying, like, I realize, like, we all have this list of things that we probably feel like we need to do. But for now, you are enough. And you don't need to, like, continue adding more and more pressure and feeling more and more guilty about the things that you're not doing. There's this beautiful thing where he kind of lets everybody off the hook. And it's kind of beautiful. It's, it's this amazing moment. Um, like, I was, um, I, I was talking to my therapist a few weeks ago. I, I love that I can just come here and be like, here's what I, my therapist and I were talking about. Um, 
and and he was just asking me like so how are you feeling and I, I told him I was like I'm tired like I've like I've been doing a lot and he like we we just had Easter and there were all kinds of other things I was about to start the, the series that I was sure was going to be a total disaster and um, we were and I was just sort of like lamenting over just like I've, I've, like there's everything is happening all at once right now and I just, I don't know like. Like even I, I take I take a Sabbath every week and it feels like it's not even enough. Like I feel like there's just I just need to constantly be doing more. And he just sort of stopped me and he said, "Do you think it's possible that you're doing your best, and that maybe like all these other things that you feel like need to get done, maybe that's totally legit, but maybe right now is not the time to do them because you're you've got enough going on." And so, um, and and so I just sort of had this moment of like, okay, maybe maybe that is something that I need to internalize. And the thing about the way a lot of us pace our lives, specifically, like, especially if you add some sort of religious component to it, it's like there's always more that we can do. And there's always more expectations. There's all, we can always read more of our Bibles. And we can always, like, give more to whatever group that we give to. We can always, we can always do all these exercises and make ourselves... But there's always... Like, the list always gets longer. And so what's beautiful here is you, you have this, this thing of, like, maybe right now you are enough. And right now, all the expectations that you're piling on yourselves, maybe just give yourself a break and just realize, like, in this season of your life, you, like, you're doing your best. And maybe just take a breath and realize that you are loved and accepted exactly as you are, which continues to be a recurring theme in the series. And um, what I love, by the way, is uh, in this one letter, which feels very disjointed, again, because of the tone, is that you have, like, these two messages that feel like they don't connect with each other. But think about this. Today, in our world... The two main critiques of churches and religion in general are, one, that they're only interested in money, and two, is that they constantly are interested in, like, dogma and guilt, right? Like, these are the two things that people get piled up with, and people, like, if you you ever talk to somebody who's like, I'm never going back to church because of, it almost always is like, all they want is my money, and all they want to do is make me feel guilty. In this one letter, John is like, Maybe Jesus isn't on board with either of those things. Maybe the things that you are like, like turned off to about church, maybe Jesus like felt like that way before you did. Because it starts off with like, if your whole thing is driven by like, how much more money can we get? That's a problem. And if you are feeling overwhelmed and like loaded up with all sorts of guilt about all the things you're not doing, that's a problem. So... It's a beautiful thing. In fact, there's this old cliche about like how sermons are supposed to go, and it's um, like one of the one of the things that people will say a lot is like you have to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, and um, which is interesting because that's exactly what this letter does. This letter is like to those of you who are making money and it's hurting other people, or it's participating in a system that's very very dark and destructive. That's a problem, and and so you have this moment of he's afflicting those who are getting more and more comfortable, and yet. There is, but if you feel really guilty and you feel like you're carrying lots of burden and it's not, and it doesn't ever feel like enough, then relax because you are enough. And so it begins to comfort those who feel afflicted. So maybe we are somewhere in between those two things. Maybe for some of us, we are in a place of um, we're participating in a market that is actually bad for people. We are we are actually hurting people with our with our choices, but we kind of let ourselves off the hook because it's good for us, and so. So I, I think this challenges us in lots of ways. Like if you do any sort of business in the marketplace, if you spend money, if you make money, if you, um, if you vote, then we have, we have lots of questions about are we only interested in, in, what we, in what we can get or are we more interested in allowing the love and grace of Jesus to move through the world in, in, in a way that actually affects how we spend and make money? 
And so for some of us, it's a question of like, what, what, kind of, what kind of system are we participating in? For others of us, it's we feel overloaded. We feel guilty. We feel stressed. We feel like everything is piling up. And to, to those of us in that place, maybe Jesus continues to say, in this moment, I'm not going to ask anything else. Just hold on. Just, just continue to rest in the reality of you are loved and you are forgiven. Again, which continues to be a theme in this letter, which is amazing because so many people are afraid of this letter because they feel like it's all about like judgment and destruction. But over and over, like five weeks now, we've come, we've continued to come up against like language of it's you're enough. You're loved. It's okay. Grace, peace, hope. These are the, these are the things that run this engine. And so some of us, we need to begin asking questions that have to do with our economic choices. Others of us, we need to take a breath and realize in this moment, it's enough. And it's going to be okay. You are loved and you are accepted and you're doing your best. So this is not a story about dogma and guilt. And this is not a story about how I can get ahead at the expense of my neighbor. This is a different kind of story. It's a story about grace and it's a story about love. And that's the kind of thing we're invited to participate in. So may we make choices with our money that actually make the world a better place and that reflect the love and grace of the Jesus that we claim to follow. And may we rest in the beautiful promise that we are enough and that we are loved and that we are doing our best. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this beautiful message that is so much like a parent talking to a child in terms of there is lots of grace and there's lots of frustration. It's all just right there. And for those of us who need to be woken up to the choices that we're making that affect other people in ways that we may not even be aware of, May we be convicted in new kinds of ways. May we be confronted in all the ways that we spend and make money. May we be confronted in all the ways that we allow our comfort to come at the expense of others. And for those of us who we feel everything piling up on top of us, may we hear your voice as you say, I'm not going to ask anything else of you. We will not pile more on top of this. This is not a story of guilt. This is not a story of dogma. This is not a story about how you can constantly need to be doing more. This is a story of love and mercy and forgiveness, and we can participate in that. So may we find rest for our souls, and may we be confronted with all the ways that we are participating in a system that is broken. If we are in all the ways that we are comfortable, may we be afflicted, and in all the ways that we are afflicted, may we find comfort. And it's the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, all right. That was one of the weirdest sermons I've ever preached. So thank you guys for being here for that. Uh, next week is Mother's Day. If you want to do baby dedication, we will definitely be doing that. So let me know. There are offering boxes in the back if you want to give. Grace and peace be with you.